And friends, we are continuing in our series here, Jesus in Genesis, and I can't believe that we only have a few weeks left. Uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, we are taking the bigger portions of Genesis and focusing in on them, and so we're not going verse by verse by verse through every chapter of Genesis, but you will get every portion, every major portion of Genesis from this series. And specifically, our aim has been to show you that Jesus is all over the book of beginnings. Uh, in every sermon, we have sought to show you multiple ways in which the scriptures are foreshadowing Jesus, in which the gospel is clear and present. And as Jesus himself has said in Luke 24, um, he, he began with the book of Moses and then in the prophets, and he opened his disciples' eyes to see him in the Old Testament. And Jesus did that for the 40 days uh, from resurrection to ascension. He was showing him, showing his disciples himself in the Old Testament. And so we're gonna continue in that tonight, but tonight specifically, we're gonna look at Joseph. Joseph, who is another Jesus-like figure in the book of Genesis. So we are going to be primarily in Genesis 37. All the texts are going to appear on the screen, uh, but we're going to do background and fill in some gaps and seek to make helpful application to our lives. So let's begin. Genesis 37.1 uh, picks up where Justin left off last week. Uh, there was an encounter with uh, Jacob and Esau. And you'll remember that uh, there was a friendly encounter, thankfully, and there was no war and there was no bloodshed. And Esau goes away from the land of promise and Jacob settles in the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And that's what chapter 37 verse one says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Now you remember, uh, Jacob was the one who received by stealing the blessing of his father Isaac, right? And that promise was not only that from you, from your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed, but also this land I will give to you and to your descendants. And so here you seeing that being fulfilled, that promise, even though it was stolen uh, by Jacob, and even though God had prophesied this stealing in some sense, he said, the older will serve the younger, uh, Jacob is here living out this fulfilled prophecy, this blessing from his father Isaac. Now, if we jump to verse three through four, we read this. Israel, and you remember last week, Jacob wrestles with Jesus, the angel of the Lord, and he changes his name from trickster to heel grabber to Israel, one who wrestles with God. Okay, you remember that. And so now uh, we go from verse one, Jacob, and now in verse three, he's Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Pause, that's bad. <laughs> okay, that verse three is terrible. Okay, let me read it again. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And then we're given the reason. Because he was the son of his old age. All right. Now, that's a bit confusing, son of his old age. But here's, here's what we know. 
Jacob, and we, we skipped this, but I'm going to give you the brief of it right now. Jacob um, had married four women, okay? And he didn't want to marry four women. He wanted to marry one woman. Do you remember the story? Okay. So Jacob goes to his mother's brother, Laban, and he is a shepherd. And so he begins to work for Laban, but he has eyes for his daughter and his daughter's name is Rachel. And she's, as the text says, she's described as beautiful, beautiful in appearance and form, Moses says. Okay. So she was something to behold. And so Jacob looked at her and was like, I want to marry her. And so he made a deal with her father that he would work for seven years if he could but marry his daughter. And so he did this, right? And on the wedding night, we can only assume because there was drinking of wine and because it was dark and because the bride had a veil over her face, Rachel's sister was given to Jacob instead. And the text says he wakes up in the morning and behold, it was Leah. Like, what in the world is happening to me right now? Like, slapping himself, am I still asleep? And so he realizes what has happened, and he goes out to Laban, and he says, how could you do this to me? Right? And, and my, my question is, how could you do that to your daughter? Like, how shady that you would... I just don't understand that mindset. And then, you know, Laban plays it off. He plays it cool. Like, oh, I thought you knew. I, I thought you knew. It's our custom here that the older has to be married off first. And so I'll make a deal with you. You work for me another seven years, and then you can have Rachel. And so he agrees. And so for 14 years, he works for his uncle Laban for his two daughters. And then you probably remember the story, but if you don't, uh, there's struggle and wrestle between the two sisters, obviously. And that is highlighted in the text for us to see this is part of the terribleness of polygamy. Do not marry two women, okay? Don't, because watch the struggle, watch the fight, watch the war, okay? Just, and, and Moses, you know, who wrote Genesis, he nicely lays out the fight and the jealousy. And then there's even war between who can have children. And so Laban gives uh, his two servants to his two daughters, Zilpah and Bilhah, and they each, Leah and Rachel, give them to Jacob. So now he has four wives, and he's having children by these four women, and we get the 12 tribes of Israel from these four ladies, okay? And you just read the account, and it is it's struggle, it's strife, it's fighting, it's ugly, it's, it's that on purpose, so you can see, don't do this. Okay? It's, a, it's a narrative way of describing when you go against God's clear commands. You remember when Jesus was asked in the New Testament, hey, Moses said, we could divorce for any reason. And then Jesus is like, no, no, no. It was not so from the beginning. God made them male and female, right? And, and he said, the two shall become one flesh. And he quotes Genesis 2, 24. And he establishes that God's original design was one man and one woman for life. And, and Jesus affirms that. Jesus says, no, polygamy was not a part of the original design, nor was divorce. It was one man with one woman, 
opposite sex for life, that covenanted commitment. That was God's design. Sin has come into the picture and broke up God's original design. And so that is Jesus' reason for saying, well, then why did Moses say you could write a certificate and send her off? And he said, this was not God's original design. Because of the hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife. And so they, they say, why did Moses command us to divorce our wives, you know? No, 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 he permitted you only because of sin and because of the hardness of heart. And then Jesus goes on to lay out uh, the one uh, exception for divorce, which is uh, uh, adultery or porneia or sexual immorality. And we can get into, hey, if you got a question about divorce, a whole series coming up, I'd be happy to do a sermon on divorce, remarriage, and the Bible. So there you go, ask that question. Maybe I'll ask it, I'll play it that question so we can have that sermon. <laughs> so the, the story here now in the background is there is one woman who's his favorite. What's her name? Jacob's favorite. Rachel, okay? Rachel has two children. Guess who the firstborn of Rachel is? Joseph, okay? And so this is why, this is what's in the background here of Genesis 37, three. He has a wife that he sees as the wife that he wanted, that he was aiming at. And so he, she has one firstborn, and his name is Joseph. And so because of that love affair with his wife, which is right, and then because she, Joseph is the firstborn, he loves her, him rather, the most. And then you remember the story, Rachel has one other son, his name is Benjamin, and she actually dies in childbirth. She, she does birth him, and then she dies as a result. And so there's two children from Rachel, and it's Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin's the youngest, Joseph is the second to youngest. Now, I want you to see something here, okay? What you may not think about is that this is not new for Israel, is it? Because didn't Isaac have a favorite son? Remember? Was it Jacob? Was it Israel? No, it was not. It was Esau. And so you remember that text. Uh, Jacob loved Esau because he was a man of the field and he would hunt and he would cook the game for his father. But his mother loved Jacob. Okay? And so this is not new. And this, sadly, friends, is part of your story, and sadly, part of my story. Exodus 34, we're gonna jump ahead a book. Exodus 34, Moses asks God to see his glory. God, show me your glory. And so God decides he will not let Moses see his full brilliance because Moses would disintegrate into a puff of smoke and atoms. <laughs> so he says, I will declare my name as I pass by, I will shield you from my full glory and I will let you see me from behind and see you know, a trail of my glory, like a comet's trail. I'll let you see that. And so as God passes before Moses, he proclaims who he is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, or you could translate that, to the thousandth generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but watch this. 
but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, I've wrestled with that verse for many years because in some sense, it seems unfair, doesn't it? It, it kind of seems unfair that God would punish the children for the sins of the father. And you know what? That would be unfair. And that's not what this verse is actually saying. What this verse is giving us insight into is what all major psychologists will tell you is that your environment, especially in the first four to five years of life, deeply shapes you for the rest of your life. Right? The formative years. And so we are a product of our choices. Yes, absolutely. We have personal responsibility and we are a product of of our environments. And often one people like to take one side or the other. It's all, you know, your upbringing and your culture and you're not responsible or you're responsible and and your upbringing and your environment doesn't matter. The truth is both matter. And we should be nuanced Christians who could say, yes, absolutely, both matter. And so the environment you grow up in shapes you deeply, whether you like it or not, whether you want to rebel against your parents' uh, home or, you know, your caregiver's home. uh, If your parents were very angry and they were very, you know, loud in the home, no doubt that's going to transfer to you. No doubt. If, if you, in fact, I'll give you a story about my own upbringing. People would say to me all the time, like, man, you're so calm. Like, you're so patient and, and you never get mad. In some sense, that's all because you only see me in public. <laughs> right? That, that's the truth. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I can get mad. But I would say that's probably 90 to 95% true. It really is. Most of the time, I'm, I'm a calm person. I'm not a very angry person. Okay, push to the limit, yes, I can display outbursts of anger as Galatians 5 calls a work of the flesh. But you know what? My father is the most patient man I've ever met. I've never heard him swear once. I've never seen him throw something in anger. I've never uh, seen him destroy any of his property because he was mad. And I've only maybe once or twice seen him actually agitated enough to raise his voice and yell. So I'm more a product of my father and the environment that I grew up in than I am this righteous, you know, holy individual. <laughs> now, is the fruit of the spirit real? Yes. So, so yes, patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And, and so if I'm walking by the spirit, I am a patient person. But there's also a way in which I grew up in a very patient environment with my father. And I just received that by osmosis. If you, if you grew up in a very anxious home, a very worried home, most likely you're going to be worried. Okay. And that, that is kind of what this verse is getting at. Okay. And so in Jacob and Esau's home, it was jealousy. There was tension. There was strife. There was family division. There was fighting. And guess what happens a generation later? Same exact thing. Now here's the good news. It's not inevitable. Okay. Uh, David Pallison is, is a biblical counselor who's now deceased, who I really respect. And he, he says this, he says, our past is significant, but it is not determinative. 
meaning you can change. You can change. So what we don't want to be as Christians is hopeless that I grew up in this terrible environment, I had this terrible childhood, and now I'm doomed for the rest of my life. No, you're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. You are a part of the covenant community of God who will walk beside you and bear your burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You can change by God's help. And we've seen it in this church. Have you seen any small victories in your life over sin? Yes, you have. And so that is proof that you can change. Now, the change process is hard and slow and long, is it not? But you can change. And Christians should be the most hopeful people on the planet. And oftentimes we're not, in part because we're in the middle of a satanic war against us to, to pull us down and discourage us and to make us feel hopeless. Because if we feel hopeless, we're not going to go out looking for victory and expansion of the kingdom of God. We're going to hide or we're going to mope, you know, mope and we're going to feel sorry for ourselves and, and hermit. But that's not what Jesus wants for us. Okay, and this is not even in my notes, and so I'm way off, and so I need to get back, okay? But if you're interested in what I'm saying right now, ask a question for our next sermon series, and perhaps we could do a whole sermon on this, okay? Let's do that. So I think what's happening here, friends, is what Moses got from God, is that God designed the human family and the human brain to work in such a way that you cannot help but absorb the environment that you grow up in. And that will be passed on unless intentionally fought against. Now, I'm not one who is charismatic, who believes in like generational curses. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is there is a neurological science that proves that you are affected by your environment growing up. That's what I'm saying. Okay. So here, Joseph is receiving favoritism just like Esau received favoritism. And now what sadly Jacob or Israel is going to do is he's going to destroy his whole family in the same way that his father Isaac, probably unintentionally, but not aware of the dynamics of what he was doing and what the causality would be of those decisions. And so here, Israel loves Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Now, the robe uh, of many colors, if you're a Sunday school kid, you remember this bizarro, you know, quilt looking thing that he wore. You're like, that is a weirdo coat right there, you know, and, and, and he's looking all proud in it, but that's probably not really what this was. Uh, in fact, it could be translated a robe with long sleeves and it's the same robe, same exact language in Hebrew that Tamar wore David's son or daughter who, who got raped by her brother. You remember that terrible story? Uh, it, it's the robe she wore as a virgin. It's the same exact phrase. And so most likely it's, it's a robe uh, of, of royalty, it's distinguishment, okay? And so what Joseph is receiving here from his father Jacob is you are the firstborn, even though he wasn't, Reuben was. You will rule over your brothers, okay? Th this is what he's doing. And his brothers know exactly what's happening here. Joseph is favored, it's obvious, and then look at what results. 
But when his brothers saw that their father loved him, it's obvious, they can see it, more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And so what Israel is doing here by showing favoritism causes this deep hatred among siblings, such that we're going to see turns murderous. Okay, and you remember Jesus said something about if you've hated your brother in your heart, what? You've murdered them. You know why? Because hate is the seed of murder. And this hateful seed here will see grow in chapter 37 until the end where they take action on the hatred. And so this is a warning to us, friends. We know as Christians, just kind of instinctively, yeah, we shouldn't hate people. But friends, are there people that you hate? If you're a super conservative, do you hate Democrats? No, I'm serious. If you're, if you're deeply on the left and committed, do you hate conservatives? If you're a seven-point Calvinist, do you want to injure the Arminians? You just want to break their legs and see them suffer. Okay, and, and I'm being a bit exaggerated here, but you, you get the idea. Um, some of us, we just hate the other side. And we, we want whatever the other side is. Masks, no masks. You remember that whole thing? Vaccines, no vaccines. Praise God we're out of that season. Okay? <laughs> so so here, here's the deal. It's e we, we might not think, oh, I don't hate anyone. Look deep inside. And there are moments of hatred. It, it, maybe you don't hate the other side, but there are certainly moments of hatred that we express even for family members, right? In the moment, you're expressing nothing but hatred for them. And I just, as a warning for myself and as a warning for all of us, there is a reason that Jesus said, if you hate somebody, you have murdered them in your heart. And this is a narrative version of that. These brothers hate their younger brother and they are moving towards murdering him. That's real. All right, so let, let's continue. They could not speak peaceably to him. And so there's strife in the home, there's tension in the home, there's hatred in the home. And Joseph had a dream. And so what, what does God do? He kind of gives opportunity for exacerbating the situation. Okay? In Genesis, when people have dreams, uh, it happens over and over. You remember Jacob had a dream. Do you remember that? Uh, Jacob's ladder. There was a ladder reaching up to heaven and angels ascending and descending. And there was a fantastic sermon preached on that. Uh, th there are dreams that God gives uh, Jacob had another one about sheep when he was working for Laban and goats. And here, Joseph now has a dream. And so you can see something happening here, okay? The dreams are being passed down. God is giving revelation. So there is something to Joseph being important even in God's eyes. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. So like imagine like a bundle of grain, you know, tall and we're binding it. We're wrapping it up. My sheaf arose and stood upright. So it was laying on the ground and it stands up. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And you can just see him saying it with a smile. This is a great dream, guys. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? So now you got the coat and now you got this dream 
of the wheat sheaves bowing down to him. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And so I'm not going to blame God here because I think that's dangerous, but certainly God took a little bit of gasoline and was like, by giving him this dream. In a sense, and here's what I mean by that. Joseph could have either held that dream to himself or maybe just told his dad, dad, I got to tell you about this dream. But wait, it gets worse. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Big old smile on his face, you know, big old flannel looking patch quilt quilt coat. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. An astrological dream. And and one one commentator said, how in the world does a star bow? I have no idea. (laughs) If you can imagine maybe a half moon doing one of the, I have no idea. But somehow, you know, dreams are weird. Somehow in this dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. Now you remember, uh, his father already loves him. And so now he's like, hmm, I got some dreams from God before. There's probably something to this. And so he's pondering it. He's keeping the saying in mind. He's he's meditating on it. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring, uh, bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I have heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits or cisterns. So these were dugout wells, and, and they would use them for gathering water and especially for feeding sheep and goats. Uh, livestock. So if you can imagine, uh, it takes a lot of green grass and a lot of water to keep massive herds of livestock alive. Right? And so shepherds, what they would do is they would be in one space and then they would mow the grass, eat, 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 eat. And then it's so low, like a golf course, they would have to move somewhere else and they find more grass and eat, eat, eat. And so shepherds are always moving around. You know, you can like rent goats to cut your own grass. This is a real thing. Okay. So imagine that some brilliant entrepreneur was like, yo, I could buy a bunch of goats and someone's going to rent these things and we'll call it green lawn care. 
Get it green lawn care, right? And, and, and Jeff has one for his business, right? You got that goat? It works great, doesn't it? Yeah, fertilizes as it eats. It just drops those little pellets. It's awesome. <laughs> then we will say that, settle down. <laughs> then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. And so here's the plot, okay? The plot is we're gonna kill him and we're going to take his coat and we're gonna say that a wild animal got him. But when Reuben, now remember Reuben's the firstborn, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that he might, now, now you're getting insight into Reuben's thoughts here, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Okay, now, now there's a lot of background with Reuben that we did not get into, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna risk with very careful words here. Uh, Reuben as the firstborn actually slept with one of his father's wives, okay? Not his physical mother, one of the other ones. And for that, um, Israel did not like him, obviously, okay? And then even if we were to travel to when Jacob blesses his sons, he mentions this. Uh, when he's about to die, like on his deathbed, he remembers what he did. And so most likely in Jacob's mind, Reuben, you're not getting any firstborn privileges from me. I know what you did to me. And so perhaps, we don't know this, but perhaps Reuben's thinking, maybe I could get back in my father's graces by saving the son he loves. Maybe. Or maybe it was just a moment of compassion and mercy, and he genuinely felt sorry for his brother, and he didn't want to see him die. Maybe. We don't know exactly what he was thinking. But 23 tells us, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Okay, so imagine this. No doubt he is screaming for help, but it's out in the middle of nowhere. They're like 65 plus miles away on foot. So like, they're out in the wilderness. In fact, if you remember a slide earlier, uh, he was wandering in the fields and he just happened to come upon some guy who said, oh yeah, I heard your brothers talking and they went to Dotham. You know, and so he travels up that way and he just so happens to find them, you know? And this is important for the end of the sermon. Just so happened. They sat down to eat. So they're having a feast, they're having a meal, they're probably celebrating their plan and that it's working, and then what happens? Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Now, who are the Ishmaelites? Distant cousins. You remember Abraham had two sons? Yeah, one of them was Ishmael. And so these are descendants, these are like long lost cousins coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt, okay? You can see here, here's Hebron where they started. The broken line goes all the way up to Dothan. That's, that's, that's quite a minute. In fact, 
This is the Sea of Galilee up here, just for New Testament reference. And so here is the Ishmaelites. They meet here at Dotham, and they head down towards North Africa, Egypt, right here. Okay? And now they are going to receive Joseph. 26, then Joseph said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. Ishmaelites, Midianite traders, same people. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels, 11 grams a shekel of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, I did some math on that. In today's money, that's like $185. But no doubt, silver was much more valuable back then than it is now. And uh, any of your commentaries on Genesis will tell you this was like months' wages, okay? When Reuben returned to the pit, okay, so let me, let me talk about Judah for just a second. So we don't, again, know what was going on in Judah's mind. You know, did, did he have a moment of compassion for his brother? Did his heart turn? Did God, the Holy Spirit, move on him? What we know is whatever he suggested, they took the advice. They're like, yeah, I guess if we sell him, at least we can get something for him. You know, and then we also won't be guilty of his blood. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. What was Judah's motive? We, we're not told. But we know that Judah intervened, and it was successful. Then Reuben, so Reuben is not here at this time. How do you know? When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. Okay, so you remember Reuben's thinking, uh, I'm going to come back and I'm going to save him later. I'm going to restore him to my father. He comes back. He doesn't see him in the pit. And this was an ancient way of showing grief and repentance. And in the New Testament, you remember even the high priest, you know, in blasphemy would tear his clothes. This is an outward expression of what's going on on the inside. Inward distress, inward sorrow, inward anxiety, sometimes repentance sackcloth, ashes, putting, putting dust on the head. So the, the Jewish people were very outward in their way of expressing what was going on on the inside. And so Reuben just tears his clothes. He's sorrowful. He's grieving. And returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? He's grieving. And again, we don't know exactly why. Was it because he really cared? Was it because he wanted to get back in good favor with his father and now his chances are gone? We, we don't know. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothing, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him 
But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son. Sheol is the realm of the dead. It's the way that the, the ancient Jewish people thought of the, the, the realm of where you go when you're dead. And so he says, I, I'm going to go to him mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, isn't it interesting? Does the goat remind you of anything that happened to Jacob before? You remember Jacob and Esau? His mother kills the goat and she takes that goat's skin and she puts it on his wrist and she puts it on the, and so there's deception by goat. And what happens to him? The same exact thing that he did to his father. Irony, unintentional, I doubt it. There is a sense in which we reap what we sow, right? Doesn't Galatians say that? Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, you will reap what you sow. Okay? Even pagans have a way of getting at this. They call it karma. Karma's gonna get you. No, not really. There is no impersonal force out there called karma. Okay? But God will not be mocked, that's what we should say. No, there is no such thing as karma, but God will not be mocked. And he sees all things, even the motives of the heart. And he knows how to get justice and promises that he will. And so here, it, it, it's a sin of the father even being passed down again, but it's now aimed at him. And he's being deceived by the blood of a goat uh, in the same way. And I think that's significant. It's significant, it's not by accident. All right, so what do, what do we make of this? Number one, you must see, even though God is not mentioned at all in Genesis 37, God is all over this chapter by what theologians rightly call providence. Providence. Uh, R.C. Sproul is a, is a hero of mine, theological hero. He wrote a book called The Invisible Hand of God. 20 years ago he wrote this in 2003. Uh, not only does it chronicle the history of Pittsburgh, because R.C. was from Pittsburgh, but he also digs deep into this story of Joseph. And I highly recommend that you get that if, if you're a reader. You will benefit greatly from it. Okay? But what R.C. rightly sees in this story is God's hand is all over the life of Joseph. And I'm not going to spoil the next three sermons by telling you what happens. But even in this story... Okay? The dreams, who are they from? God. They're prophetic dreams. Okay? The prophetic dreams cause his brothers to even have a more intense hatred of him, which causes them to do what? Plot to kill him, but only God will allow you to go so far with your plans. Right? You think about James in James 4, and James says, Who are you, O oh man? to say, we'll go into such and such a city and we'll live there for so long and we'll do business and we'll trade and we'll make a profit. He says, what is your life? Is it not a vapor that is here for a moment? And then he says, instead you should say this, if God wills, we will live, comma, and do this or that. 
And so right here, you, you see the providential hand of God, not only in giving him the dreams, allowing the brothers in a hatred to intensify to the point where they're going to kill him, but then God comes in and saves him by virtue of two of his brothers who also hated him. But then, now he's getting into Potiphar, look at that verse 36 there, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard. And, and we'll leave this for later, but uh, Potiphar is actually over prisoners, very important prisoners, like staff members to the king of Egypt. And so, uh, here Joseph is like second in command for Potiphar's whole household. And again, I don't want to get too much into next week's sermon here. But it's very important that the, the very place he lands is the very place he needs to land for the next thing to happen. And then that place is the very place he needs to land for the next thing to happen. So think about this. Uh, he, he's wandering in the field, and where's my brothers? Like, open field, no goats, no sheep, no, and there's just some guy who happened to hear them say, oh, I heard them say, like no texting, hey, where you guys at? No letters coming in the mail, no phone calls, like think about it. He had to meet a person who delivered the news, otherwise north, south, east, west, which way do I go? Oh, I heard, I heard some shepherds say they were going up to Dothan. All right, I'll make my way. It's another 15 miles on foot. And there they are. And they're like, yo, do you see that glowing coat in the distance? Right? There he is, the dreamer. Let's kill him. And, and amazingly, what we don't see, we don't see the hand of God in this, but they don't kill him, do they? They deliver him to the very people that deliver him to, to Potiphar, which is exactly where God wanted him to be. And so here's the question I have now for you. Where are you at right now that you don't want to be? Think about it. Like, some people ask me, hey, how you doing? What's new? And I'm like, give me a category, right? Like, there's new in all these categories. Like, give, let's narrow that question down. That's too big. Okay, so, so think of the categories of your life. Marriage, finances, friendship, health, siblings, children, suffering. Just think of all the categories. Are you where you want to be? I'll bet no hands would go up. And then we have to ask the question, is God in it? Is God in every category? Secretly, invisibly, sometimes undetectably guiding every one of your days. Well, the text we read at the very beginning says he is. Remember that Psalm 139? All my days recorded in your book before one of them took place. Wait a minute. So you're saying God ordained tomorrow for me and it's not here yet. That's what it says. James 4 if God wills, you will live tomorrow and do this or that. And so we're Bible Christians, right? We believe that God, because the Bible teaches this, is invisibly ruling and reigning over all the seemingly 
insignificant details of your life and the big details. Having a prophetic dream once, that's a big deal. You're like, that's from God. You waking up groggy, rubbing your eyes, hitting start on the coffee pot, that's also from God. And then add the flat tires, add the rebellious children, add the frustrations at work, add the sleepless nights, add the fill in the blank. Is God in it, friends? And here's my encouragement. If he is, you can live this life in confidence. If he's not, then I want to ask the question, who's in charge? You? That's scary. Satan? That's worse. No, God is over all. He rules and reigns from the heavens. Friends, he is in some sense outside of the universe, which itself contains billions of galaxies, each containing billions of stars and planets, of which we are one little tiny, tiny, tiny insignificant planet. He's over it all. Right? The, the psalmist says he, he calls the stars out by name. You're like, how is that possible? Friends, we have a God worthy of worship, which is why we sing. We don't have a small puny God who's ruling over this earth. No, he's over the universe. I mean, Brett would say he's over the multiverse. <laughs> and so here, God is all over this story right here, Genesis 37, yet he's invisible. He's not even mentioned. Friends, one time I remember I was having a conversation with a friend who was suffering greatly. And he said to me, this was years ago, how, how do you remain so, I forget the word he said, probably was calm, right? How do you remain so calm, like in the face of so much chaos? And I said, well, I don't have any children. <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke. I might have had one at that point. And, and, I, and I said, he said, what verses like, do you remind yourself of? And I said, you know, bro, honestly, in that specific question, I have this overarching umbrella of God's sovereignty constantly in my consciousness. Meaning, when bad things happen, do you know what I think? God's involved in this. Do you know why? That makes it bearable. That makes it purposeful. Even if I don't understand what God is doing, God, why would you do this? I don't like this. If I were you, I wouldn't do this. You know what? For me, it really helps me to remind myself of what the Bible teaches again and again and again, that God is ruling over every moment of your day and mine. And that is comforting. Because if he's dropping the ball and things are happening that he doesn't want to happen, what kind of God are we worshiping? But that's not the God of the Bible. The mystery for Christians is the mystery of suffering and God's sovereignty and human responsibility and agency and God's sovereignty. That's the mystery. And we're not fully given all the answers. We can, we could dive deep into that pool, but there's still mystery there. But you know what? One day when we're glorified, I think we're going to get even more light into that mystery. One day, I think it will make more sense 
Now, we're not going to have infinitely the mind of God because we're finite creatures, but I think we'll get more understanding. And so I think you could say to yourself, I will get the why, just not yet. And then, again, uh, let me make one more application and we're out. Jesus is all over this passage. Hey, you might not see him clearly, just like providence, just like the hand of God. It's not, it's not so clear. But because we have the New Testament's revelation, we can look back through that lens and we can see Jesus being foreshadowed even in this chapter 37 and this story. And so Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, and so was Jesus, wasn't he? He came to his own, and his own received him not. All of his Jewish brethren were standing outside, and in John 19, 15, and 16, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to be crucified. As Joseph was betrayed and rejected by his brothers and plotted to be killed against, Jesus was betrayed, rejected by his brothers, and actually killed. He's the greater Joseph. As Joseph was sold for silver by one of the 12 brothers, you remember Judah? Let's sell him. Jesus was sold for silver by one of his 12 brothers. Did not Judas betray him for silver? And so Jesus is the greater Joseph. And as Joseph is in this cistern, he's in this pit, no doubt he's crying out for help. Save me. Help. You know, to anyone who would hear, but especially his brothers. And they're, they're eating. They're just enjoying a meal. Joseph did not get an answer, did he? He begged for help, he begged for salvation. And so Jesus, in the garden, begged for another way. Let this cup pass, yet not what I will, but what you will. If there's any other way, Father, let's do it that way. And what did he hear? This is the only way. He did not get the answer that he wanted. And so Matthew 26, 39, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. And so you can see, and there's more. We could pull out more Jesus out of this text, but three is enough. Okay? Jesus is the greater Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers sold for cheap metal and cried out for salvation and yet did not get the salvation that he cried out for. But you know, Jesus did it on purpose. Jesus knew, he was conscious of his being the Messiah. He was conscious that his hour was upon him. Remember, he said to Judas, friend, do what you do, do it quickly. For such is your hour. And, and then John interestingly says, and he went out and it was night, meaning darkness was getting the upper hand. 
And so Jesus purposefully, even himself said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, meaning all people groups. That, that statement was inspired by the Gentiles coming uh, to meet Jesus. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it back up again. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and he will rise again. And so Jesus knew this is what he was born for. Self-conscious of his needing to die on the cross, even spoke of being lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And yet, when the time came, Oh God, can we do it another way? No. No, son, I can't save you from this. And he willingly, friends, went to that cross for you and me. That's the good news. He was not a victim. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up. You know what? If I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels right now, wipe you all out. But he didn't. But he could have. No, he did this, friends, so that we could be brought to the Father, know him, have the very spirit of the Father and the Son dwelling within us, and then have this promise of future glory and hope that we can hold on to in the toughest of times. Friends, when everything's crumbling in your life, did you know that you have an uncrumbling future? You know that, right? Where moth and rust can't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal, where there is no corrosion, where there is no tooth decay. Right? <laughs> no more UPMC bills just flooding my mailbox. Like, glory, right? Like, come on. Let's go. Friends, we have great hope, and we, we should remind each other, and we should remind ourselves of these truths often, that God is in this as hard as it is. And as much as I don't want this, as much as I don't like this, God is in this. And as bad as this is, my future is bright and will go on forever. Forever and ever and ever. You wanna boggle your mind tonight? Go and try to figure out eternity. Just eternity future, just forget about eternity past. And then imagine you have a dot, whatever your birthday is, and you're never gonna end. Yeah, your tombstone will have born date, die date, but the minute you die, you're still alive. As the body returns to the dust from which it came, the soul or the spirit returns to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes. And that's our, that's our, that's our future. And we can hold on to that in the best of times saying, oh, it could be better. And in the worst of times saying, it will be better. Amen. And this is all because of Christ. And that's why we worship. It's the reasonable thing to do, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and sing songs and give our lives to him for his purposes and his expan the expansion of his kingdom and his service. And so we're gonna do that right now. We're gonna take communion, remember Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for us. 
We're going to sing a song in light of the gospel, uh, reminding ourselves as we sing and our friends around us of this good news as we sing. Uh, and then after we sing, I'll come out and I will uh, lead us in taking communion together. So if you could stand. Thanks for taking a minute to watch this video. My name is Pastor Chris Moran. I'm one of the pastors at Eternal City Church in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. Eternal City is a church that values biblical authority. We teach the Bible verse by verse, week by week, and we are seeking to eventually preach the whole way through the Bible. We believe that Jesus is God as he claimed to be, and his person and work are the center of the entire Bible. We believe that the Great Commission is still relevant today for Christians, that Christians are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. Eternal City is a church that values diversity in that we are a church of all kinds of people, cultures, classes, colors, and capacity. We are a church that values community and we seek to see our members hold one another accountable and build each other up in discipleship. We are a church that has a plurality of leadership for pastors and deacons who are servants who serve under the pastors. If this sounds like an interesting church to you, we would love for you to visit our website to find out more about us, eternalcity.org, or come visit us on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m., 1300 Swissville Avenue, Wilkinsburg, PA, 15221. Hope to see you soon.